Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. I'm Michael Finan, Marketing Assistant with Harper Academic. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Natalie Haynes. Natalie Haynes is the author of six books, including her recent novel, A Thousand Ships, which tells the story of the Trojan War from the point of view of the female characters and was shortlisted for the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction. In Pandora's Jar, Natalie continues her focus on the under and misrepresented women of Greek mythology. Through a series of essays, Natalie takes us through women from Pandora to Helen, from Eurydice to Penelope. She shows us other sides of these women, drawn from sources rarely consulted in our modern retellings of these myths, and asks us to consider questions of what stories we choose to tell and why. All right, so joining us on our podcast right now, we have Natalie Haynes, and she is the author of Pandora's Jar. And Natalie, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So um, like you, I love Greek mythology. Um, Correct. And you talk in the book, yes. Um, and you talk in the book about your love of it, which stems from childhood. Um, so when slash how did you start to realize that maybe the versions of these stories that you grew up with weren't exactly giving you the full picture as far as the women I mean, shamingly late, I think, mm-hmm. um, p- partly because the, the materials just weren't available to me as a, as a school child, I don't think. You know, there was until I came, either the story was kind of so far removed, the first the first overlap probably between things I'd seen as a movie as a kid and things I read in my A-levels at Classics, so when I was 17, 18, um, I guess it's probably Medea because I read Euripides Medea in Greek um, class and I'd seen her in Jason and the Argonauts, but they were so far removed. She's, you know, such a minor character in the movie. You know, she's an incredibly beautiful priestess and that sort of dark magic side of her which is really present in Apollonius of Rhodes's version of her, I now know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not that we don't see anywhere near as much of that. We see her do as a bit of, you know, hexing and, uh, and being angry, but we see her doing much more poisoning um, and stuff like that in the Euripides play. So I think I kept them really separate in my mind. It's like there's classics, the thing I study, where these women exist and do stuff. And then there's kind of pop culture in my childhood where these women did almost nothing at all. They were basically furniture. Um, Mm. And I just don't think I kind of put them together until I was an undergraduate probably and started going, wait a minute, wait, what? You know, I I wasn't a sort of huge nerd for for Greek myth as a a kid, I don't think. I, you know, had the same kind of children's books that other people had. But um, yeah, it was probably when I was doing my undergraduate degree that I started writing about women and the heroics of, of um, extreme action, let's say, in Greek tragedy. And it's like, wait a second. So maybe that. Mm-hmm. Was there um, a particular discovery um, that you came across either in your work or in the actual research of writing this book um, that you know, was particularly surprising to you that you were like, oh, wow, this is this is fascinating. Over and over again. Um, I think probably the Helen chapter was that was the most surprising. The Pandora one, uh, I mean, just being able to say, sorry, she doesn't have a box. 
was right. quite yeah. I mean, obviously it was I mean, enormously right satisfying <laughs> for the title <laughs> of the book and now i'm trying to write volume two it's like well everyone keeps going well, what are you going to call the second one you go, I, I can't just produce these things out of thin air <laughs> it, it did already exist just so you know um so yeah i suppose that but mainly helen you know because this trope of helen as yeah just as much as pandora being a villain uh, which she mm -hmm. simply isn't in greek myth um this trope of Helen as this sort of terrible adulteress who, you know, the, brings down the ruin of a city. And, you know, I knew other stories about her, for example, that she is kidnapped as a child by Theseus, who must be in his mid fifties at the time. And, you know, we don't, and, and that starts a war too, yet we don't, I hope. We gloss over that. A child is responsible for that. Um, but we have no problem seeing her as responsible for a, a war that she is, you know, part of the instigation of, but, you know, somehow gets all the blame for when she's an adult. Um, but I think there were some fun bits and some really sad bits in the Helen chapter that I just didn't know at all. The um, fun bit, I guess, was finding um, Ptolemy, Ptolemaeus Kenos, Ptolemy the quail, um, who's not an actual quail, sidebar. Um, but uh, he gives this incredible list of different versions of Helen, which includes one who eats three kid goats a day and one who raises a bilingual sheep. And the, <laughs> this discovery of a version of anyone at all, but the most beautiful woman the world has ever known, <clears throat> carefully tending to a bilingual sheep. <laughs> and it's so casually thrown away. He doesn't even mention the languages it speaks. It's just like, oh yeah, whatever. So that was a good it's just day. bilingual. I mean, you know, what do you want from me? Blood? <laughs> it's like, I've told you it's bilingual. Um, and the other bit was um, in uh, an, a fragment of a lost Sophocles play called The Demand for Helen's Return, where it's very much the kind of Iliad version of Helen, full of remorse, full of uh, self-reproach for having uh, started, as she perceives it in this version, uh, the Trojan War. And she's there's only like I think three fragments of the play remain one where she is so traumatized that she is threatening to drink bull's blood i.e poison i.e kill herself um but another and I it was one of those things where when I read it I literally kind of turned the book over like there might be a, a secret trap door on it or something it's like wait what <laughs> um another where she's uh, and it's a really harrowing piece of, of text this tiny fragment where she's um scratching at her face with writing implements and I was like, sorry, I what? You're giving me the world's most beautiful woman engaged in self-harm, which already feels like an incredibly 21st century narrative rather than a two and a half thousand years old narrative, but there it is. And, and the thing that she is using to disfigure herself are the writing implements which have been used by men to make her this celebrated figure all across the, the Greek world. It's like, I'm not even sure, is there a word for something that's past irony where it's sort of tied itself into a perfect bow and then right. put itself on top of, a, of an anecdote? It's like, wait, what? And I, I genuinely couldn't believe it when I, when I read it the first time. I was like, how can that be two and a half thousand years old? It feels like I would have read it in a contemporary writer's retelling of the story of Helen. Um, right. It just felt so modern and yet there it was. And how can that be two and a half thousand years old? And we don't really, and that was a shocking discovery. Like, how yes. is that not a part of her larger narrative that we know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can see how it's only a tiny fragment of a lost play. You know, Sophocles wrote between 100 and 150 plays. We've got seven um, mm -hmm. and then a bunch of fragments. So it's, I, I wasn't expecting everyone to make the effort to track it down. 
but it is that thing where you're like oh okay we should yeah we, this is something we should really be thinking about a little bit more I think feels like a lot of the negative attributes and actions of these women, particularly the ones that have survived that, you know, are present in the modern retellings. Um, they, as I was reading through, it seems like a lot of those tended to reflect fears that men have about women. Do, do you think that's yes. accurate? I do think that's accurate. Um, I, I think that the sense that somehow, somewhere, your wife might be, I'm struggling to say this, and anything that would be allowed to be um, uh, aired on a US podcast and not either get you banned for obscenity or <laughs> um, British slang but I was like, yeah. <laughs> hmm, <laughs> tricky but this sense that somehow you might as a man in 5th century Athens inadvertently raise a child that is not your own is it, it, to, to describe it as a sort of paralyzing societal anxiety is not I think too strong you know it runs throughout the culture that we you know, absorb without particularly even thinking about it, all the way through Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King. It's like, well, who is his father? Well, who are his parents? Well, can he have done this terrible thing? Um, and it's like, well, no, of course he can't. How could he have? Because he knows who his parents are. Oh, wait. And you know, the thing is, brutally, women always know who their children are and men don't have that privilege in the ancient world. There is no DNA testing, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this paralyzing fear that something might go wrong. In fifth century Athens, for example, um, where these plays are all being staged for the first time at the, at the city Dionysia, the, the theater festival, drama festival, um, the legal penalty for seduction, for adultery was more severe than the penalty for rape, um, which seems both shocking and horrific to us and should do. But it makes sense if you look at it from that perspective, because mm -hmm. of course it is the case that um, your wife, if seduced by a man, as, as your lawmakers might perceive it, um, would then have an incentive to keep this pregnancy, this different father of a child, secret from you. If she'd been accosted by a man and assaulted, then you'd be more likely to find out about it. So less likely to accidentally bring up a child that isn't your own. So once you once you acknowledge that the there's this in, intensely patriarchal and an incredibly paranoid mindset in place I, I sometimes I find myself reading it thinking would it have been so bad if you brought up someone else's kid I mean what if they're nice what if they try hard what if they're really sweet and look after you in your old age is it so terrible that you don't share blood but of course for the Greeks that's that's not a question worth asking let alone worth answering it, it answers itself so um I do think this this crippling male anxiety of women misbehaving when you're not looking um, and we can see it in legal speeches, you know, where um, uh, a woman has a, an affair with a man who sees her as she attends her mother-in-law's funeral. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess if you cloister women so they can't ever go out, the only time they're ever likely to be seen by a man to whom they're not closely related is at a funeral. And, and obviously this, this fear really played on men's minds in the fifth and fourth century that you know, even going out to a funeral, they would suddenly be prey to men who were determined to, to catch sight of them. So, you know, it, yes, these men are clearly afraid. And I think sometimes you can see it in the art as well. Um, so there's almost no images of Clytemnestra on Vars paintings. There are no images, almost none, uh, and certainly no definite ones of Jocasta. Um, there are a couple that have been claimed as her, but there's no 
uh, guarantee the most the most famous um, heavy mm. inverted commas image of Jocasta um, uh, on a vase painting has been dismissed by Professor Edith Hall as, as not being as very probably being from the Alcestis, Euripides Alcestis, but um, because we've mistaken the gender of the two small children um, because they've got long ringlets and so everybody went, well they're girls, and it's like apart from over here <laughs> where, <laughs> where children with long ringlets are in fact boys or a boy and a girl or whatever. So. Um, yeah, I think there's this there's this sense that men don't necessarily want to be reminded, you know, if they're in a social situation where, you know, a big wine bowl might be in use. Um, they don't necessarily want to think of a sort of angry wife holding an axe waiting for them. <laughs> um, although I might add that is the scene that's on the Docomarcia painters um, version of the story of Agamemnon Clytemestra held at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, um, which I will one day get to visit in real life, I hope. Oh yes, come over, come visit. I love Not that to. I'm in Boston, but I've missed enough. you all very much. Yes, we we want to have you over here. Mm. Um, but so, given all of that, um, you know, these differences between ancient Greek society and our society today, the lens through which we view these plays and even these works of art to an extent, um, how many of our standards today can we realistically apply to these ancient mythological figures? How how many should we? be able to apply. I mean, realistically, none at all. You mm -hmm. know, we are so far away in both time and place. Um, uh, the cultural overlap is, you know, both everything and nothing at all. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's really hard to kind of pick anything. There are some moments where you can feel the same kind of squeamishness or unease, but there are so many points of, of divergence. You know, there's a, a bit in the Trojan Women where in the big ago and the debate at the center where Helen and Hecabe are discussing whose fault the Trojan War is. And Helen says, well, basically it's your fault because you had a prophecy that Paris would destroy your city and you should have killed him as a baby. And to, to us as a modern audience, we're like, did you just berate a woman for not killing her child? <laughs> but, but it's not remarked upon in the play. So I think we have to assume that, that for an ancient audience, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to, to say, or at mm -hmm. the very least for a fifth century audience watching this play set in the, 12th, 13th century BC, um, it didn't seem like an outlandish thing for the characters to say. It's logical, then, makes sense. I think so. But then you look at something like the story of Helen's abduction by Theseus, and you can see ancient authors are troubled by it, you know, and it's like, well, she's seven when he takes her. And then a couple of them start to try and round up. It's like, well, she's 10. And you're like, 10 is still gross, by the way. But you can see that they're really uncomfortable with the idea of seven. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when young girls were often married at the age of 12 or 13, um, you can see that 10 doesn't seem as bad as, I mean, it's all vile to us, but right. you can see that to them, there's definitely a distinction being made. Um, and then occasionally you find these moments where, you know, Plutarch or someone is just appalled by the behavior of Theseus and sort of lists the women that he has raped or murdered or both, or, you know, he kills her father and then, and it's like, oh, okay, you seem genuinely angry about this. Um, mm -hmm. Or at the very least, you think it's worthy of note. And he even says in this passage, um, you know, we, we think a lot about Phaedra, who famously falsely accuses a young man of rape, which results in his death. Um, he says, but, you know, Theseus does lots of terrible things as well. It's just those aren't put on the stage. You know, the story of Phaedra was a an incredibly celebrated play, The Hippolytus by Euripides, but also was told by countless other, um, in countless other forms. And the story of, of Theseus basically being a serial killer of women 
that's largely overlooked. And, and it's like, well, if you could see that the best part of 2000 years ago, my question is, and often was when writing that, that book, how did we forget? You know, how did we forget that these stories needed to be told? When I published my last novel, A Thousand Ships, which is, you know, the women's perspectives of the Trojan War, a journalist asked me very politely and nicely um, if it wasn't a bit anachronistic to make women the center of the story. And I was like, dude, of the eight tragedies that Euripides wrote about the Trojan War that survived to us today, seven of them have women as the title characters. If it's anachronistic, you need to tell him because he didn't get your memo. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, how, how did, he knew that that's where drama was. How did mm -hmm. we lose it? And I, I, I find myself thinking that over and over again, you know, Ovid knew, however problematic we find him in the first century BCE, that women's stories told you a different perspective. You know, he wrote an entire collection, the Heroides, um, of, of letters from the abandoned women of Greek myth to their absent menfolk. It's like he knew that their stories were worth telling. And then, you know, that these women go silent for centuries, for millennia. And it's like, well, if Ovid knew it, we definitely should know it. Mm -hmm. And that's um, one of the things I really loved about A Thousand Ships is that, um, so often when you have these retellings of myths, um, they can feel overly modernized, almost hyper woke in a way, like they're trying to make up for a lack of equity in the past. Um, but A Thousand Ships doesn't feel that way. Again, like I said, I love Greek mythology and A Thousand Ships, it really reads and feels like the original myth. And I think that's because, you know, you're you're not inventing something new, really. You're drawing. Oh from no, I've nicked it from everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're drawing from what from is all over there. the place. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not to discredit you as a writer. No, no, creative, it's okay, just I accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was so gutted when I came to write my next novel, which um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give you the title because it doesn't get revealed um, for two weeks from the point okay. of, of when we're recording. Um, <laughs> but it tells a story which, of which there are almost no sources, um, literary sources. So I've had to use, you know, vase paintings and there's nothing else there. And you're like, oh my God, do I have to make this up on my own? I can't believe this. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I know, I felt so aggrieved. God, it's like writing a, oh wait. <laughs> um, so Natalie, one thing that I, enjoyed about the book and have enjoyed about this conversation um, that I didn't exactly expect going in um, is that you're a very funny person, both as oh, a writer, thanks. as a speaker. Um, but a lot of times, especially in the book, it feels like your humor often acts as a vehicle for some deeper truth, some double standard hypocrisy. Um, is humor a tool that you use consciously often? Um, I, it's hard for me not to. I was a stand-up comedian for Really? 11, 12 years. I was. It was my first job after I graduated. Yeah. Wow. So Didn't I started I doing comedy as an undergraduate. I was part of the mm -hmm. Cambridge Footlights, which is where uh, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson all were, although decades before me, because I'm very young. <laughs> um, I'm a bit younger than them. Uh, I'm quite a bit younger than them. Um, and, uh, and so I started doing stand-up comedy when I was 19. Um, and, and it, was my, it was my whole job until I was over 30. And so it's really, I have to try so hard not to, not to go for a joke. I, it's a huge effort for me. I would do it at a funeral, do you know what I mean? It's like, you have to kind of keep, so in many ways, it's the, I'm always trying to keep it down. To it. It's like, oh, <laughs> now is not the time. <laughs> but I think often when you're coming up against something which is so irritating or so prejudiced or so, you know, tiresome, that it's like, oh, 
how can you not at least a bit of you mock it you know it's like mm -hmm. this is there's a reason why dictators put comedians in jail it's because it's a powerful thing mockery and i am too old now to spend all my time being angered and hurt by the way um, women's narratives are sidelined and minimized and diminished and all of those things it's like you know i'm still a little angry and i'm still pretty hurt sometimes but i am not in the mood for playing <laughs> so it tends to be the case that my ungenerous mean streak comes out but yeah mostly i'm trying not to be the world's meanest 15 year old girl but occasionally it just slides onto the page <laughs> um so to close out our conversation about the book um so all these women we've been talking about, um, these are largely mythological women. These are not real people drawn from history. Um, these are essentially made up characters. So um, why, why does this matter? Why does the way that these fictional women are represented truly matter? You know, I mean, firstly, this is a distinction that we make, but the ancients didn't make. To them, myth is just history that happened longer ago when there were still dragons um, <laughs> or sphinxes or whatever. So mm -hmm. that's it's it's our distinction, but it wasn't theirs. To them, you know, there's a bit where is it in Plutarch, I think, where he's talking about the Amazons and he says, um, you know, these stories are all a bit mangled, but that's to be expected because they're really old. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, no, that does make sense. <laughs> um, but it matters, I think, um, because essentially myth is a mirror, right? So it reflects the time in which it's set, but also the time in which it's told. Um, and so the way we engage with these myths now says something not just about the myth and, and when it is the Bronze Age, usually with me, um, but also it says something about us. The fact that there's suddenly an audience in the last sort of decade or so um, to hear the stories of, of characters who have been largely marginalized in retellings of Greek myth, it, it, it's because we changed. And so I've, it, it bothers me that there's a, there's a sort of expectation um, that of course stories should focus around men. And when you change that, people go, oh, I see. So you've changed it from the norm to this alternative. And even if they're supportive, they're still essentially accusing you of deviating from a norm, which is that men are the center of the universe. And with all due respect, men, I'm super fond of you on a you know one-to-one -one basis, um, but I just don't accept that that's the case. Women are half the world. We're half of people and are the same thing as people. And so if we, if we allow that narrative to stand, we, we assume that, that nobody would ever really want to know the story of a woman because we've already got the story. So this is just like some little appendage story. And it's like, no, the story of, for example, Odysseus and Penelope is the story of Odysseus and Penelope. You know, it's not just about even the Odyssey, which is literally named after the man, doesn't really feature him for the first few books because, you know, there's other stuff to talk about, like his son or his wife or the goddess who's supporting him or all kinds of other things. You know, it's like, I don't want a story told from one perspective. It no longer interests me. Um, I think if it were in discussion, we would call that polemic. But when it's um, making fiction or a film or a play or something, we would just say, oh, this person has a really strong vision. But it's odd how often that vision has turned out to be what a man is interested in. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to continue to engage with um, stories about men written by men and perhaps even for men um, after all um, you know the, the Greeks did it as much as anyone and the Romans if anything even more um, 
but it had better be as good as Sophocles Philoctetes, because otherwise I probably know as much as I need to about men, I think. Um, and, and I would like to hear some other narratives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's great. Um, so Natalie, one more bonus question for you. Yes. Um, and we like to ask this of all of our guests, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher, and this is a really hard question to answer because my favorite teacher didn't like me very much, which I know you're not <laughs> supposed to admit, <laughs> but I'm afraid it's true because I was really annoying as a child. I mean, I'm relatively annoying as an adult, not gonna lie. Um, but I think I was probably quite hard work as a child, I was quite brittle and quite stressed. Um, but I had a brilliant Latin teacher and he taught me um, from the age of uh, 11 and I won't name him because I don't want people to be cross with him for not liking me. He was really entitled to. Um, uh, but he taught me Latin from the age of 11 right the way through to 18 um, and he taught me Greek and he taught me ancient history. And so it is genuinely the case that because he was a brilliant teacher and in many ways more brilliant to be so inspiring to somebody you find whose company you don't particularly enjoy. Um, it's because of him that I, I got to go to, you know, read classics at Cambridge because of that, that I got to, you know, be in the position that I'm in now when I get to write books on the thing that has, has been my heart song since I was a teenager. So yeah, I am really conscious of the fact that um, we're made by teachers, built by teachers. So um, I know it's a tough job sometimes, but they are heroes. They are, this is very true. Um, well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been truly an honor to get to talk to you about this. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'll see you soon. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.